you can take control of your body, even though your brain is telling you that it's not in control. That whole idea of the anxiety spiral, making her panic. These socks don't feel good. These socks don't feel good. I can't wear these socks. I can't wear these pants. And so teaching her that, hey, did you know that you can control your brain, send a message back to your brain just by what your body is doing? Welcome to Mindful Conversations with Kay. I'm Christy. And I'm Kelly. We are both moms, educators, kidding around yoga teachers, and trainers, and now podcasters. In this podcast, we will talk about using research-based tools and strategies to help increase mindfulness, self-awareness, connection, self-regulation, and peace in your home or classroom. Join us weekly for some fun and insightful conversations where we will take a deep dive into all things kids yoga and mindfulness. Hello, friends. Welcome back to Mindful Conversations with Kay. I'm super excited for this episode. Christy and I had the pleasure of interviewing Laura Pedix. Laura is a pediatric occupational therapist from Southern California. She works in a sensory integration clinic with children ages 2 to 10, where she helps support gross motor, fine motor, and sensory processing abilities. She also owns her own online business where she focuses on educating parents about how sensory processing impacts their children's learning and behavior through her online courses, one-on-one coaching, podcast, website, and social media. Parents find so much value in learning and working from her, not only because of her professional expertise, but because her personal experience raising a neurodivergent daughter who has sensory sensitivities and anxiety. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode where we dive into behavior and sensory sensitivities and self-regulation skills and so much more with Laura. Let's get started. All right. Welcome, Laura. I am so excited to have you here. I have been following you for quite some time, so this is super exciting for me for you to join us on our podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I, I thank you for inviting me. I love talking about all things sensory and how it can fit into the classroom is really a really uh, very needed topic more and more. So thank you for, for inviting me. Awesome. Well, why don't we start with, tell us a little bit about you and kind of how you got started in the work that you do. Yes. So my name is Laura Pedix. I am a pediatric occupational therapist. I up until just this past month was working in a clinic, working with kids um, who have sensory processing challenges, developmental challenges, neurodivergent uh, traits and qualities and supporting them at home and in the classroom through work in the clinic. And recently I have transitioned to spending all of my time on my online business, which is the OT Butterfly, where I focus more of my support tools um, on parents so they can support their kids at home. What I was finding when I was working in the clinic was um, working just with the kids seemed 
to be helpful, but there was always a gap in, um, in the way that I was able to help parents follow through with some of the strategies and programs at home. And the, the time that you're allowed in the clinic with them was never enough. And so there were some clients I was able to provide support in person and do parent consults with. And those were the ones that had such tremendous breakthroughs. Um, so seeing how both in-person support and parent coaching uh, can really work well together and was really necessary, really solidified my, my uh, decision to have to leave the clinic because of the work that I'm doing, reaching parents across the world who can't access OT in person for so many reasons. Uh, and which is a something very personal to me because ironically, I'm an OT and I have a daughter who's neurodivergent and I'm having a hard time getting her the qualified services that she deserves and needs because of our not so wonderful healthcare system in the United States, so uh, so to speak. And so I know that coaching parents and helping them at home, giving them the ed education and the tools to support their kids at home can go a long way. So I focus a lot of my efforts um, there and meeting parents where they're at um, with their kids. I love it. And I can so identify because as a mom of four and three out of the four are neurodivergent in some way or another between anxiety, dyslexia, sensory sensitivities. And I find it really, really difficult to get the support that my kids need, which is really why I got into the work that I'm doing with yoga and mindfulness, because when my oldest, who's 18 now, needed support. Uh, you know, we were really struggling to find what she needed. And so then I started doing a lot of research. And I think that's probably how I found you. I think maybe through another podcast, maybe through Natasha Daniels. Um, yes, potentially. I love working with <laughs> Natasha. She is, she's great. Yes. So she has a similar, similar uh, model where she's working with the parents of kids who have anxiety and OCD, which is where we're two of my kids fall into that category. So I think that's where I found you. And, and it really is uh, so important because I always used to say, even when I had my kids in therapy, that was like one hour a week, maybe. And then like, we're on the front lines the rest of the time. And it's really overwhelming. <laughs> so exactly. That's exactly what I was hearing from parents and yeah, the parents just need more of the, the tools, um, not only to, to help their kids, but really the understanding of how their child's brain works and how we can work with that rather than focusing on trying to change it in so many ways when you're going to go against the grain. And there, there's, I, I find so much reframing for parents, the idea of something that is working or what's successful can already show them that they've already made so much progress because they're looking at the wrong outcomes and the metrics based on other arbitrary measurements of success from the external world. Yeah. And I think the same thing with classroom teachers. Yeah. Right? Like exactly. Christy and I do a lot of professional development workshops trying to help educators to understand that very same thing of right. looking at the child from a different angle and behavior. Yeah. yeah. So we also talk a lot about why it's so important for children to really be in tune with their physical body and their physical sensations, which I wish someone had taught me when I was a kid, <laughs> but can you speak to that um, on, you know, what, what you think about, about that topic? Oh yeah. I, this has been 
it's something that's um, ingrained in a lot of occupational therapy, the idea of the mind and body connection, right? You hear that all the time, but it wasn't until recently coaching parents through it and finding ways to come up with language that works with parents, but also with kids that I started really talking a lot about the brain and body connection. And I've been having this conversation recently with my own daughter, with my five-year-old who has sensory sensitivities and and anxiety. And there's times when her mind and her body are disconnected. Um, and that sends her brain into a panic and makes her body do things that it doesn't need to do or want to do. And so I'm trying to teach her that you can take control of your body, even though your brain is telling you that it's not in control. That whole idea of the anxiety spiral, making her panic. These socks don't feel good. These socks don't feel good. I can't wear these socks. I can't wear these pants. And so teaching her that, hey, did you know that you can control your brain, send a message back to your brain just by what your body is doing? So the need for the connect is comes from the idea that, especially with I, I, my home, all of my lenses through a neurodivergent lens, right? But this can apply to any kid, but obviously in my very sub, small subset of working with parents and clients who have differently wired brains, a lot of them have a hard time connecting the mind and body and really starting from a, a rewinding back a little bit, not even before just connecting the brain and body, but being aware of your body sensations is something that a lot of neurodivergent individuals have a hard time with. So being aware of it, meaning there is something off going on in my body. Some kids might be aware that something feels off, but not be able to identify if it's pain, if it's an ache, if it's a hunger sign. Some kids might not be able to identify uh, where in the body that is. Some kids will say they have like leg pain and then later throw up. It was actually stomach pain, but they just could not localize it. They can't identify the intensity of it. Um, and so if you can't even be aware of your body, which is like such a pri like a primal need to feel um, here. Like, I don't know how else to say it, to feel here in space grounded, you're gonna be very dysregulated. And what that comes out as to the world who's not experiencing your own body, but what other people are seeing are behaviors. Fight, flight, freeze, um, uh, like being like not cooperating with certain things, refusing certain things, like all of the behaviors can stem from just this true inability to be aware of your body. And then of course, once you have that, then there's that extra step. Can we connect it to our brain? Can we um, put words to what we're feeling? Can we then make a plan to help make that feeling um, not necessarily go away, but to really process that feeling and know what it is and know how to sit with it and regulate that feeling. So it's such a multi-layered step, but the first step of course is being aware of those bodily sensations. You know, <clears throat> and that, that's great. And kind of in light of that being so important, how do you feel like parents and teachers then need to evaluate how they sort of approach behavior? Yeah. So the first, I always start by, especially when I talk to parents, um, 
I start by um, making making sure that they understand that behavior is not a dirty word. I always have to redefine <laughs> what the word behavior is, right? Because parents are like, well, it's not a behavior. I'm like, well, everything is a behavior. Like laughing is a behavior. Scratching your elbow is a behavior because there is a scratch there. It is just the way your body is reacting to something in the environment. It is emotion. It is a, something you're saying. It is a behavior. So knowing that we can be, there's no value to behavior, no good or bad. There's you know, what unwanted behaviors or some behaviors that we may want to transform or change. Um, so what we always say in the field is behavior is communication. So rather than always trying to like the, the first line of defense, the first knee-jerk response I hear from parents and teachers is to, how do we get them to stop this behavior? We need them to stop doing this. We need to change this. Um, but that's like three steps ahead. And we, and when we come back and think about why the behavior is happening, even that assessment of the why is happening still feels very surface level when you do it too quick and knee jerk. Oh, well, why it's happening? Oh, because they didn't want to share their toy. They just have a hard time sharing. Okay, well, let's peel back that even more. Um, this is a neurodivergent child who is sensory sensitive and overwhelmed by sounds and touch. And in this group environment when they were all digging through the blocks, so-and-so's arm was grazing against his arm and the way that he grabbed the block put imposed touch on his hand. And so he pushed the child. So it's peeling back all of the layers and spending time. Um, I call it brain dumping, brain dumping all of the different reasons why a behavior might be happening. And when you keep asking, well, why is that? Why is that? A lot of it comes back to something in the body that's dysregulated. Even if it is something like didn't get sleep last night or didn't eat enough food or, um, you know, vacations coming up or they just came back from vacation, that all affects the nervous system and the regulation. And so if you are trying to just stop a behavior with a behavioral approach, meaning like, well, you lose recess or, well, I'm going to, you, you have to move your clip down or, well, you're in timeout or all of these behavior management, I'm putting in air quotes for anyone who can't see all of these behavior management techniques are not going to really do any service to your, to the child. Um, and it really does come from regulation. The reason why, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, if it were that easy, everyone would do it. It's, it's not easy. That's why you are doing what you're doing. That's why we all have jobs in this space because we are <laughs> experts in this field and we have the knowledge, but not only the knowledge, it is, I can fully, uh, sympathize for teachers trying to do this for every student and in a class of 30 kids. Yeah, that sounds really hard. And, but even at home as a parent, decoding each behavior and, and knowing what the root of it is, and then sitting with that and finding ways to regulate your child, it is a longer route, a longer journey. It's not as easy as um, I'm counting to three and then you're going to lose your iPad or go, no, like it's easier to do those behavioral management things and you might get quicker results. Yes. But long-term, long-term, right. Long-term they will come back and, and it's not going to work out long-term. And we want to think about the long game for these kids and giving them the tools now, the regulation now, the words for self-advocacy now rather yes. than later. Yeah. And, and um, being, being a parent and a teacher who has been in the classroom, it's really hard sometimes to stay in that present moment yourself mm -hmm. 
to even to even be able to identify those behaviors and um, even coming from the other way with my my eight year old who has sensory sensitivities and anxiety, you know she's a skin picker, and you know to the teacher she she seems fine in school because she has all her anxiety before you know the separation from me and in the morning and all of that and then they tell me if she's great in school she shows no no behaviors but she comes home with like ten band aids all over her arms and legs every day and I'm like she's picking her skin because she's anxious in school. She's just not telling you, or you're not seeing that behavior as a sign of that anxiety. So it's like, sometimes it's a behavior, yes, that we want to get rid of. Like, I don't want her to pick her skin and be making herself bleed, but also like, I want them to be able to understand that that's something they need to pay attention to. If we really can tune in and look at our students and our children and be like, you know, like you said, peel those layers back it can sometimes reveal a whole thing that we never even would have imagined or thought of. Exactly. And behavior is just on the outside. It's, you cannot see what's the same thing for how she holds it together. Her anxiety. There are kids who, uh, who are good at looking like they're paying attention and listening. And then they come home and they're exhausted and they're like, I didn't learn anything. Well, that's not, that's not productive. That's not, I'm sure that's not what the teacher wants. So we need to understand what regulation looks like because the child is not going to be able to learn and participate if they're not regulated. You're not going to get there. Yeah. And I loved your, your post that, that actually encouraged me to um, reach out to you recently, even though I've been following you for a couple of years now, was your post on this whole body listening and how yeah. teachers can really should really be moving away from that in order to let their students be able to regulate themselves as long as, as it's not a, you know, disrupting the whole class or it's not unsafe. So what are your, you know, speaking of regulation and tools, what are some of your, your favorite regulation tools that, that you like to share with your clients and, and your daughter too? Yeah. My first, um, any type of tool that I provide teachers, parents, or that I work with my daughter is I try to find as many body-based tools that I can, meaning it does not require a tool, like an actual object, um, or to move too far away from where you need to be sure. If we're talking about sensory seekers, absolutely. They need to like, a lot of them need to move their body. But what a lot of people don't know is even if you're a vestibular seeker, you can still get the vestibular input, the movement input, um, because it's just in your head, like the way your head is positioned. You don't have to actually be running and rolling around the classroom. You could touch your toes 10 times and invert your head and get the same vestibular input. Um, heavy work is something that all OTs will preach and will never stop preaching because it is, I call it the magic pill of regulation. It is one of the eight senses that I have still yet to come across in my career as someone who is sensitive to just proprioceptive input, heavy work input. You can be sensitive to touch, sensitive to movement, sensitive to taste, smell, sound, all of that. But proprioception is an inherently calming, um, uh, input. Not all heavy work, I, and I'm using the word heavy work and proprioception interchangeably. It's the same thing. It's just a cuter way to say it, heavy work. And it's more descriptive of what it is. It's input to your muscles and tendons and joints. So active input against, against gravity. Um, not all heavy work activities are created equal and not all heavy work is regulating to everybody. But uh, generally speaking, very, very isolated heavy work activities that just like squeezing your hands together 
or even sitting on your hands under your legs or doing like chair pushups um, are really good ones to do in the doctor's office at the dinner table uh, when you're waiting in line. Now, if you're not sitting down, but if you're standing, you could squeeze your hands. These are my first line of defense um, in terms of quick strategies to do in the moment, no matter where you are, because a lot of this dysregulation happens outside of the home. So I like to go first to um, like any sort of body-based heavy work activity, which is which is any kind of um, body weight exercises. Um, I like pushing against the wall. I said, squeezing my hand, squeezing your hands together. Um, chewing anything provides a lot of heavy work to your jaw, which is really regulating as well, which is, and sucking as well, which is why a lot of us snack when we're trying to focus on something or watch a movie or, or work on like, you know, a late night project. Um, that's where that comes from a lot of it. So that's where I usually like to start. And then, um, so heavy work that's body-based and then deep breathing, um, not necessarily a sensory input, but just in terms of regulating your nervous system and more of your interoception system, um, which is your internal sensations like heartbeat, breath rate, all of that, when that all comes back to regulation, uh, to like a, like homeostasis, your, your optimal level, then you are much, uh, better equipped to have your brain and body to be connected, to be regulated, to participate, to listen, to ignore unwanted sounds, to, to ignore the, the wrestling of the papers, like, and, and to focus in class or focus at home or wherever it is. So those two heavy work and deep breathing are pretty good universally <clears throat> regulating things, um, that you can do anywhere. I feel like so much of what you're thing is, is stuff that we've talked to. You're saying it much more eloquently than we say it, <laughs> but I love, I love all these things. The deep, the deep breathing we've talked about a number of times. When I was thinking about this whole idea of heavy work and, you know, incorporating yoga poses into, mm -hmm. you know, we talk a lot about you know, different yoga poses and how they can work, you know, within a classroom in, in classroom or at home or wherever you are, you don't need the external thing, you know, go into chair pose, right? So you're, you're bending your knees and you're down there in chair pose and your legs are working and your hips are working or all this, you know, or, or striking some sort of a balance pose, like a tree pose or something like that, where it just requires that, you know, the body to be, you know, body and brain to be connected. So love all of this. This is great. Yeah. And, um, we, we talked a little bit about it being really challenging for teachers to have a room full of 30 children, and to try to offer all of these different, you know, regulation tools. Um, what are your thoughts on using tools proactively in the classroom so that children can remain more regulated as the day goes on in hopes that they need less individual regulation? That's the goal, right? That's the idea. That is the, uh, the holy grail of what we're searching for to uh, it is much easier to proactively regulate than pull them out of dysregulation. Mm. Um, so proactive can be anything from, you know, incorporating animal walks when you transition from center to center. It can be stomping like a dinosaur from the rug to, to line up at the door. One of my favorite ones was 
as they're lining up at the door and they walk out to recess or walk in from recess because you still need some regulation after recess. First of all, recess is not long enough. Second of all, recess sometimes still ramps up kids and then they're, they're still coming in with all that energy. But one of my favorites is when, as you're passing a door frame to like walk out, everybody has to hold the door frame for five seconds and push really hard. Yeah, it's going to take a few extra seconds to get out of the classroom. And yeah, it takes more energy this way. But just like I say at home, when I have my one, I only I only have one. And, and I love that I only have one. But I hear from parents like it's harder when there's multiple kids. Yes. When you have to spend extra time adding these little bits to your routine, it feels like you're adding minutes to your routine, but you're getting it back because later on, you're not going to deal with a dysregulated mess or a meltdown, ideally, right? And I say this all the time, I, I can give you the information, and we could set them up for success. And it's not always going to work out exactly the way um, that we hoped kids are not robots, we can't program them and make them exactly how we want them to be. But we can certainly try to set up the environment for better regulation. And so yes, to answer your question, proactive is key. It's best and just little intermittent, like little drops throughout the day. It, transitioning movements between places can can do a lot for for kids. Yeah, in our uh, in a lot in our professional development, that's what we're trying to encourage teachers to do, to just pull in these little bits of a little breath work exercise, a little yeah. do a yoga pose before you sit down at circle time or whatever, whatever that might be. And I know at home, I'm constantly trying to do that at home with, yeah. with yeah. my kids. And, um, you know, like for instance, my eight-year-old, I know that water is regulating for her. So school mornings are really tough for us. So, you know what, I wake her up a half an hour early and she showers in the morning. Now it's not always perfect. Um, you know, this morning she still had a little bit of a, a meltdown, but it was very short and she was able to regulate herself much more quickly than if she had not showered the 10 minutes before because she was she was coming from a better place. So and we've heard over and over, too, from teachers that we've worked with that first say, like, I don't have time to add in all of these extra things. And then they come back to us and say, oh, wow, I'm finding so much more time in my day. Now that I'm doing these things, I'm finding I'm able to spend more time on instruction because I'm not having to stop and refocus everybody as often as, as, as they used to. So it really does work if you can kind of wrap your head around, you know, interspersing it as you go throughout the day. Yeah, yeah I, I kind of think of it as like um, marinating a piece of meat or it's like you could spend all this time like marinating it the night before and all the flavors are already going to be in it. Or you could just like sprinkle seasoning on top, but you're going to still you're going to still spend time at the end of it. And it probably won't be as long lasting or deep in that flavor or robust of a flavor if you had spent time beforehand marinating the steak, preparing it, tenderizing it. Now I'm getting hungry, but <laughs> same idea, the same idea. That's great analogy. Great analogy. Great analogy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I love everything that you are doing on your platform. I, I, I just, every post that you, you put up, I'm just like right in there with you, uh, you know, just supporting everything that you're doing because uh, it's just so, so important that parents and teachers really begin to understand their children's brains and those behaviors and really learn to come at it from from a different I mean we're we're making strides but you know the education system is a long ways away from you know where where we needed to be really 
but it's exciting when I, when I see platforms like yours uh, out there. Oh, thank you. And likewise, we're, we're fighting the good fight for our kids and we just keep putting the information out there, spreading awareness. You, you know, we, we, I will get the, the parents to help them advocate better for their kids. And you can keep giving teachers the education to actually make it happen. And together we'll close the gap from both of our sides. <laughs> Perfect. Amazing. Perfect. Well, I would love for you to share with our listeners where they can find you, where they can learn to work opportunities to work with you if if they're looking for that support. Yeah, so I am always on Instagram. So that is at the OT Butterfly. Um, my website and podcast, you could access just on my website at the otbutterfly.com slash podcast. My podcast is called Sensory Wise Solutions. And, um, I have one, if there is, if there are teachers here who want to learn how sensory impacts behavior in all of the different ways, I have a mini course called sensory is behavior that you can check out. And it's just a very quick crash course meant for parents or teachers, anyone who wants to understand the different kinds of common behaviors you see in classrooms and at home and how it could be related to sensory and also some ways that it could not be related to sensory, but I give you a little insight in how I peel back and I brain dump certain behaviors, kind of like what I did earlier and talk about all the different reasons why they might be happening to open your mind up um, to go beyond the behavior. And you could find that at the otbutterfly.com slash behavior. Well, it was really great chatting with you. It was such a great, great conversation. And we really appreciate you being here with us today. Of course. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe and give us a written review to help us reach others and share all the benefits of kids yoga and mindfulness. If you want more information on all that Kidding Around Yoga has to offer, you can find us at kiddingaroundyoga.com and on Facebook and Instagram at kiddingaroundyoga. We will meet you back here next week for another fun conversation with Christy and Kelly.